I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. Before we get to the episode today, guys, I want to tell you about our collaboration with Israel Story. Israel Story is a podcast that brings you long-form storytelling from in and around Israel. There's extraordinary true stories about regular people living in Israel. It's the kind of stories that you won't see or read on the news. Uh, and they show it in a quirky, unpredictable, interesting, really moving way. And it's, it's just a great podcast about this place that we think we know a lot about. But we really don't. So, for example, they just kicked off their fourth season with an episode called The Wall, which is about a Jewish Arab baby born at the Western Wall during the Six-Day War. Incredible story. So check it out, guys. Uh, Israel Story. You can subscribe to Israel Story today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher at IsraelStory.org or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Today's guest is no less than extraordinary. There is no way we can do justice to his life history in this short intro, in this single episode, or even if we dedicated this entire podcast to it, for that matter. No joke. But just to give you an idea, after witnessing the Nazi book burnings in Kristallnacht, he escaped Germany in the nick of time in 1939, only to be on the front lines during the invasion of Normandy as part of the British Royal Army Service Corps. After the war, he interrogated the Nazi foreign minister, Joachim von Ribbentrop, as part of counterintelligence, was awarded the military medal by King George VI, as well as France's highest honor, the Legion of Honor, and now holds the Guinness World Record for being the eldest radio talk show host, but not too old to have skydived just last year at the age of 94. Oh yeah, and he acted in a couple of movies as well. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I am extremely thrilled and tremendously honored to be joined today by host of the radio show, Walter's World, Walter Bingham. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining us. So there's so much to talk about. And like I said, we're obviously not going to get to everything. But I want to start at a point that I read in an article, a point in your life where in 1939, you were 15. You had a different name. You were uh, named Wolfgang, and you get on a boat to leave to England as part of one of the kinder... uh, Kinder transports. Yeah, and your mother is there at the railway station, and you're waving goodbye. What did that feel like? Well, I have to tell you that this uh, kinder transport, which uh, started sometime after Kristallnacht, when the uh, Jewish organizations in Germany were concerned about the children and contacted charitable organizations in England, Mm -hmm. uh, asked them to take the children. Well, that uh, was organized fairly quickly, and 10,000 permits were given by the British. I'm not sure if all 10,000 made it before the war. I don't think so. Maybe seven and a half. And then there was someone in every town who played God. For some reason, I was chosen. My father had already been deported, but my mother took me to the railway station, like all the other parents, and it was a very traumatic moment because the rule was unaccompanied children, no parents. Now, can you imagine the trauma of little ones? I was 15 and a half, so, and I had lived through the period 
and I was aware of what was going on. But then there were little ones of three and four who went with their siblings and said, Mommy, Mommy, I, I love you, Mommy. Why you said it was very traumatic. And the heroes were the parents. You must imagine that it was five minutes before the outbreak of war. It was already bad for Jews at that time, but the parents knew that it's not going to get better during the war for Jews. And so they sent their children away knowing that the war breaks out any moment now. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that 99.9% of children never ever saw their parents again. The parents, of course, be left behind went the way that most Jews went. Mm -hmm. So you're waving goodbye to your mother. At that point, did you understand that you probably won't see her again? No. In fact, my mother was on a list to come as a domestic servant uh -huh. and waiting for the pay. As, that's what a lot of uh, Jews had to do. But the papers didn't come through in time. I see. She eventually went through some of the camps. Mm. And fortunately, I'm one of the very few children who ever saw any of their parents again. Wow. So after the war, we You're, were reunited. Really? What, how did that happen? Can you tell uh, us about that? Well, I was stationed in Hamburg in counterintelligence at that time, and she was saved by Count Volker Bernadotte in this famous action with white buses. It's interesting to learn about. There's a white bus on show actually displayed at Yad Vashem outside in the open. Count Volker Bernadotte was from the Swedish Red Cross, Okay. went to Europe during the last few weeks of the war and by arrangement with Heinrich Himmler, the Gestapo chief, was allowed to collect Scandinavian Jews from the concentration camps. Somehow there was a group of people who was also picked up and my mother was among them and they went through Denmark mm. uh, and uh, came to Sweden. Because you were living in the Weimar Republic, but you were from Polish descent or only your we, father? Yeah, we, I, we were living in Germany, which mm -hmm. was politically the Weimar Republic, but I came from Polish. I see. So your mother was saved by the Swedish Red Cross. Yeah. And when did you guys reunite? Like, where oh, did that, that happen? Was, uh, sometime in 46. 46. And where? In England? Uh, no, no. She was living in Sweden. She, in fact, she lived all her life there and married another Holocaust survivor after it was established that my father was no mm -hmm. longer. And I had a colleague in the army who had a brother in Copenhagen. Now, Copenhagen is just across from southern Sweden, Malmö, where my mother was. And he arranged that she could come to his brother's house. And I had to leave from the army to go to Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. And there we met. But So that was already planned, to meet in Copenhagen? It was, it was planned. It was arranged. How yes. did you discover that she was still alive? Did you guys uh, lose contact during no, the war? No, it was through, through relatives in America that she contacted Ah, I see. And you were in and touch so with and them. I was in touch with them. And then there was the Red Cross and there were various ways of finding out. But do you remember the moment that you... Because for a while you must have lost touch, right? Six years. Six years. It was... You see, my mother left me as a fairly naive... Look, let me say this. I was worldly in some respects because I lived under the Nazis and there you had to have your wits about you. But in many respects that uh, youngsters of my age today are aware and do things that I didn't know about. So she left me as a naive 15 and a half year old 
and saw me again as a 22-year-old experienced soldier who's been through the war. Wow. Incredible. So let's talk about the war a bit. So you ended up in England yes. uh, as a teenager and then eventually drafted to the British Royal Corps. Well, the Poles had called me up because, as you heard, we were Polish. And, and when you were born in Germany, you were not a German if your parents were something else. It's different today. I didn't know I was Polish. I knew I was uh, moving in a, a Polish-Jewish circle, uh -huh. but I had no idea what kind of a passport I would need or had. Or, or in your head, you were first and foremost, what, Jewish? Jewish, yes, yeah. Jewish. Well, you, <laughs> you were made much aware of it, <laughs> yeah. that you're Jewish. And I didn't know, I, but then somehow I got a Polish passport, valid for about a month. And with that, I came to England, which was a, a rather an advantage because I was a friendly alien. Poland had an army in exile, mm -hmm. in stationed in England, and a government and in exile. A government in exile yeah. Yes, so I was a friendly alien, and all my friends who were the same as I was, but who had German or, or stateless or Austrian passports, uh, they were enemy aliens, and eventually they were interns. Mm, in England. My, all over the world, descending yeah. to Canada, to Australia. Um, my wife, she was from Austria, uh -huh. uh, from Vienna. She spent 18 months on the Isle of Man, which is an island between Ireland and England, interned. And, I see. Uh, and that was, so uh, you, were, you were actually drafted to the Polish army? Yes, and I went there and I said, I'm not going to the Polish army. Okay. And I said, look, uh, I can't speak Polish. I've never been to Poland. If the sergeant says turn left, I'll probably turn right. And in addition to that, and I said that, you are anti-Semitic, I'm not joining your army. So they said, okay, we'll see what we can do. And then eventually they said, okay, join the British army. And so you became, I read, a, a duck driver, which are these huge uh, Initially, yes. They're those huge uh, trucks that uh, look like ships, have propellers. And they can go into the water. They go into the water and can automatically while you're driving, inflate and deflate the tires because if you go uh, come out of the water and you come on sand, mm -hmm. then you need a flatter tire, otherwise ah, you sink in. I see. When you go on a hard surface, you need a tight tire. That's incredible. And you could do that. I had no and, idea that they uh, had that kind and, of technology. Uh, and that unit yeah. was supposed to unload ships before there was ever any facilities for harbor. I see. So when the ship can't the reach all the way to the shore, so then they, 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 these they vehicles. Right. But eventually, you you opted out of that and well, into something else. Well, that was else. a funny story. <laughs> uh, one thing you should never do in the army: you should never volunteer for anything. One day they came and said, "We want volunteers to drive ambulances." So my oh, wheels no. started turning. If I drive ducks, I should be a sitting duck in the water, five knots speed, the German Air Force will come and will bomb us to hell. So maybe I should become an ambulance driver. That's safer. A terrible mistake. There was no German Air Force to be seen, and the ducks had an easy time. And uh, later on, they were driving up and down the canals of Holland and Belgium. And I got in the very thick of it oh in God. the battles. In fact, forward of the infantry at times. Because you were actually having to go fetch the injured and the wounded. That's right. What was the invasion of Normandy like? I mean, you when you land immediately, like the first landing, that what there wasn't well, we on, fire. We, we came over on a big boat uh -huh. 
and then were transferred onto a landing craft. Because I was not on the very first day, mm-hmm. there were some markings. Ah, okay. And uh, we followed that. When we, did the that, fighting start? At that point, well, uh, we went then further in, and then the fighting started. And eventually I got to Hill 112, which was the pivotal battle of Normandy. Those who commanded that hill, only 112 meters, I suppose. 112 stands for the elevation. Mm-hmm. But that was a very, very tough battle. And I have some battle maps that I might show you. There's one particular one, which is a secret one, which is from the 8th of July. And you can see that our division fighting only SS Panzer divisions and Hitler Youth, not Mm. the regular German army. And in my ambulances, I evacuated wounded, including German SS Panzer division people. Really? An SS Panzer division is actually some of the more fierce... Well, they were, German S- fighters. S- they were from the SS. Yeah, from which the, is elite unit. Uh, the elite unit. The elite yes. German unit. So at some point, the ambulance was, was decommissioned, let's say. Well, I was lying forward of the infantry in a dugout, and in another hole was my ambulance orderly, the medic, and in another hole was the doctor. The three of us you worked as a unit. And somebody came running back from further forward, and said, please help, we are being uh, uh, shot up. So I took my ambulance and my ambulance orderly, and we went forward, and there was this anti-tank unit, which was decimated by German mortar fire and tank fire. And I was trying to evacuate the wounded under heavy fire, and the major in charge of the anti-tank unit was helping me to load up, and the next thing his head was one side and his legs were somewhere else. He was gone. At times we dived under what was called a brain gun carrier, which was on tracks, mm. personnel carrier, and it had a clearance of, I would say, less than 18 inches. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we dived under that, and at one occasion my ambulance orderly got shrapnel, mm-hmm. and he was out of commission, so I was on my own. And the ambulance was shot up, mm-hmm. out of commission. And then I uh, decided I needed to evacuate the wounded and crawled back. I, my infantry training came back. When you, well, you've mm-hmm. got to leave under fire, <clears throat> you go down, crawl sideways, come up, run, and then go down somewhere else, come up, so that they can't take aim. And with that, I went back. I don't know how far. It must have been an easier half a kilometer. Got another ambulance Uh and went back into the fire. Wow, you had a death wish. (laughs) No, no. You see, a British soldier is in the army either because he has to or at best he wants to fight for his country. I had no country to fight for, certainly not the Germans. I was just arrived in England. I, England was not my home. I fought against. There's a very big difference, and the motivation for us Jewish soldiers was much different. We fought against the Nazis, not for any country. Hmm. And so I wanted to see my parents. I wanted to get on with it. So that's really finishing. what drove you back. So it drove me back to finish the job, to save the soldiers mm-hmm. who can fight again. I mean, I didn't philosophize like that. It was yeah. just, uh, that's it was how an it instinct. happened. And later, we'll talk about it, you were awarded the military medal, which uh, is for uh, bravery. Yes, and the, the, the original signal 
that went back, which was signed by uh, the whole hierarchy all the way up to King Montgomery. Ah, okay. His signature is on there as well. Okay, because I read that King George actually awarded the medal. Well, I was in the field, so I didn't go back to England to get it. Mm. I got it in front of uh, the division, my divisional general in the field. Oh, so you got it during the war? Immediately. And uh, there was a signal went back, and there they approved it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not exactly sure when you transferred to counterintelligence. After the big battle of Hill 112, Mm. I started saying, look, anybody can do what I do, driving an ambulance. There's certain skills of driving an ambulance because you have wounded inside, but anybody can do that with a bit of training. I speak fluent German. Come on, we're going into Germany. You must need German speakers. And they wouldn't let me go because uh, every unit was under strength, lost a lot of men. And then eventually in Holland, I reached a place called Eindhoven. And following Eindhoven came the famous Battle of Arnhem, the bridge over the Rhine, which was a disaster for the British. Mm-hmm. Just before that battle between Eindhoven and Arnhem, I was finally released from the ambulance job and sent back to London to to train for counterintelligence work. Ah, okay, I see. So they finally did accept the request and then you went to counterintelligence and then you ended up interviewing the Nazi foreign minister. I was a document specialist also and I went and then I worked in Hamburg. Immediately the war ended and did various work and uh, one day they brought into my office this tall, uh, good-looking young man, unshaven of course, in a British uniform dress because they obviously took off his civilian clothing Mm -hmm. in case he had cyanide capsules and other things. All they had was uniform. And then they put him into British clothes. And uh, he was Joachim von Ribbentrop. And Joachim von Ribbentrop was at one time the German ambassador to Britain. And when war broke out, he went back and became the foreign minister. They knew I was interested and brought him into my office. I worked at the offices of the Nazi leadership. We took over that so your, your job there was to interrogate the no, Nazis? No, initially my job was to see all the documents that we could find. I see. And evaluate them and then disseminate them to where they had to go. And so. But the job of this office that was in charge of the, Nazi leadership? No, no, the office was the area security office. That was intelligence called counterintelligence. Mm-hmm. I started one job and eventually I, I did other jobs. I had permits to do anything I wanted. I was a sergeant. I was allowed to wear officers in sick. I had a blue open BMW car and I could do what I liked. In the course of my work, they made for me civilian clothing mm-hmm. but when I needed it. And then one day they brought in this man and they knew I wanted to speak with him because they knew I was Jewish and I wanted to know about the extermination of Jews. And I asked him, can he tell me about it? And he looked me in the face. We spoke German and English. And he said, I didn't know anything about that. Who was the foreign minister who was in charge of that in all the countries that they occupied, uh, special Einsatzgruppen, the p- people who did all the dirty work with Jews, that they all did their work. And he said he knew nothing about that. So I could have strangled him, but I was a British soldier, intelligence agent, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I had to behave myself. I couldn't do anything, which was hard. 
And I said to him, I see, but now, of course, you know about it. So how did you find out? And he said he read it in the newspaper. I was speechless, but what could I do? It wasn't my job to argue with him or to educate him. My interest was to listen to what he had to say. And then he saw that I took out a camera, and when he saw me taking that camera out, he said, is this for publicity? Do you mind if I have a shave first? I said, sit down. I mean, this man had the audacity to want to shave before he gets photographed. Well, I photographed him, and then I had a friend come in to photograph me at the open top, and neither of us knew how to set this camera. You know, you had to set the focus, and you had to set the exposure, and no pictures. So eventually, Ribbentrop was hanged. He was the first to hang after the biggest of the war crimes trials. So he was the first one to hang? He was the very first to hang, yes. And how did it feel to sit face to face in front of this guy? I mean, after you knew and you hadn't yet reunited with your mother. How did I feel? Uh, Interrogators have to see that they don't lose their cool. Yeah. So what was the objective of this? Because this is after the war. So what's the objective of actually you know, interrogating these people? First of all, to collect evidence and then to show the world about their evil deeds. It had to be publicized. The world needed to know. And the perpetrators had to be punished. And for that purpose, there were arrest categories for each of these paramilitary organizations, and there were many. Generally, the public only knows of the SS and Hitler Youth, maybe maybe, but there were many of these paramilitary organizations which were formed at the time uh, before the war because Hitler only was allowed under the Versailles Treaty after the First World War to have 100,000 men under arms. So this was his way around. He formed all these National Socialist Flyers Corps, National Socialist uh, Drivers Corps, and and these people trained as soldiers. And that's how he got around the restriction of the Versailles Treaty. Uh, and so the uh, idea was to just document as much of the, the information? Well, as we, much uh, there, there were arrest categories certain yeah. in, in each of these uh, paramilitary organizations. There was a list of, from that rank on, mm-hmm. he's uh, to be arrested and interrogated. And the intention of interrogation was to find out you get information to be used in evidence for probable trials. They brought him into me because they knew that I wanted to find out about the extermination of Jews. Mm-hmm. All my colleagues knew I was Jewish. I see. So they knew that you had a special motivation oh, to... Uh, absolutely, yes. I see. Immediately after Normandy, you were awarded the military medal. Yes, yes. Um, and how, I mean, how did... I mean, if it was right after, was, was were you kind of just numb at that point? I mean, how did it feel to be awarded well, the medal? Well, uh, I took it as an award to my colleagues also. My work was particularly noticed, but so many soldiers did so many things yeah. uh, that some of them, some of the things they did probably much more brave than what I did, but mine was noticed and that's... Uh, yeah, uh, I saw that not so many people received this medal. This was not the highest of the British medals. Uh, okay. It was very high decoration but the highest of thing was the victoria cross you had to practically be be dead in fact to get it i see so it's a good thing not to get it but more recently you were awarded the legion of honor which is the highest honor decided to award me the legion d'honneur which was their highest decoration both civilian Mm -hmm. and military 
and uh, I was very honored to have received that from them. Mm-hmm. That happened in Haifa here in Israel. It was the, it the, 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 the ceremony was t- ceremony took place here. Ceremony took place here, and they brought in a French warship mm-hmm. that was cruising in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. They brought it specially to Haifa, and I thought there'd be a few of us going and getting this. No, it was just for me. Really? And there was a big ceremony with all the soldiers and the, the sailors with their guns. It was on the ship? On the I ship. See. I had a few of my friends with me. Some of my family and some of my friends came. I was allowed so many people to Amazing. bring. And much of the Israeli press was there, as well as the military attaché from the British Embassy, of course. I stood on the helicopter pad, and the French ambassador, was a lady, made a very nice speech and pinned that medal on me. Uh, Actually, I can't show it to you because I've just sent it off to London to be mounted properly for, for ceremony that's coming up, which a ceremony is coming up now in November. A ceremony? What kind of ceremony? <coughs> ceremony of, of Armistice Day. Ah, okay, ceremony. I see. Yeah, Armistice in, Holon, in Holon, there is a... Uh, British military cemetery. Ah, okay, I see. For all the soldiers, I British see. soldiers. So, I mean, this is this is all many, many, many years ago. The, the Legion of Honor. Yeah, yeah. But the, the for the events that you may it was awarded yeah, to that, you that, for, for, the for the having been there and on the, decades. In the invasion of Normandy. Yeah. But you know, you've done so much since, and uh, as we mentioned, you kind of had an acting career going for a while. Well, so you, you see, I was in radio now for 50 years or yeah. more. Radio didn't pay that well. <laughs> to say the least. And so for, for fun one day, I started growing a beard. Okay. And then I had a very, very large beard, enormous beard. And then someone said to me, that beard can earn you money. <laughs> yeah. So I went to a few theatrical agents and they all liked me. Uh-huh. And uh, I suppose my personality and everything else. And I got a lot of acting jobs. Ad- advertisements, if you look around uh, here, you see of loads of stuff here. Yeah, I see one right here for... Uh, behind you. My face was on the London buses. My face was on the walls of the underground stations. Wow. Uh, the subway stations and... Yeah, there's uh, some serious advertisements uh, here. And I did a lot, a lot. And uh, then I uh, was a Santa Claus in two of London's most famous department stores, Harrods and mm-hmm. Selfridges, and I did documentaries. And then we were yeah. speaking before, you were in the Harry Potter movies, which you hate when it's mentioned. Uh, yeah, you, shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't have mentioned, <laughs> mentioned that because I did uh, much nicer and yeah. bigger work than uh, Harry Potter. It's, yeah. it's just that people seem to focus on that it's, when they hear that yeah. word. It's a magic word and... Uh, People, uh, all of a sudden, their eyes light up. A, a magic show and a magic word. But it was, the, honestly, the least of your career. I mean, you did not, some more, uh, much more serious terribly, roles. Nothing special. Yeah. I would have been in every one because yeah. I had a very good relationship with the agents. Ah, okay. And I would have been in every one had I not made Aliyah yeah. and came to Israel. So do you, what do you enjoy more? Do you enjoy acting or do you enjoy kind of radio Oh, hosts? radio is my passion. Ah, yeah. That's why I'm, I'm still doing it. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, when I first arrived here and then applied for state radio, Kol Israel, yeah. uh, who had in all languages, for them I was too old. It's now more than 15 years later and I'm still working somewhere else. I mean, for radio, 
you you want people who are intelligent, who have life experience, who have wisdom. I don't understand why age would even be an issue. I thought that state radio would want to mix experience with youth. Yeah. So that I could learn the modern technology from the young people, mm-hmm. and they would learn from me the tricks of radio and uh, and life knowledge. And right, I right, mean, right. but, but today radio is all it about it just like it didn't work. It keeps me going. You know, I mean, I was just about at, to ask you, how at, do you stay so young? At my age, I'm expected to sit in a rocking chair. Well, if I sit in a rocking chair, you die. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to keep active mind and body and thank god i have very good genes it seems uh, there was a trail of thought until very recently that all cells renew themselves except brain cells mm-hmm. die now they've they've changed their minds that brain cells also renew themselves if I you see. keep active and use them so so radio is the secret Right. Doing doing something that you're doing, passionate doing about. Doing something that you like. Yeah. But, it doesn't matter what it is. Keep active. Do yeah. it. Might skydiving also be a part of the recipe? Well, I'm a crazy guy. <laughs> so skydiving, I, I, I like to do uh, silly things and, uh, and things that uh, you wouldn't expect yeah. uh, uh, me to do at the age. I'm able to do it, so it's fun. So it's, how did that how did that come about? I mean, did I just like to, to do it. I wanted to do it a year before, and I never did. And uh, saw something about skydiving. I said, I'm going to do that. So you did it here in Israel? Here in Akko, and I'm going to do it again. Really? Yeah, before my hundreds or for my jumping hundreds, out of a plane once wasn't enough. No, no, <laughs> no. But you you actually, I mean, at what height are you? You that was at four kilometers. Four kilometers, four so four thousand meters, thirteen thousand feet. 13,000 feet, and, and then, you uh, skydive for about... Yeah, I wasn't on my own, of course, you can't do it. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm not a parachute, I was tied to an instructor. Mm-hmm. I was in front of the instructor. And you, you free me. fall for about how I long? I free fall for a minute, a which minute. was a long minute. Wow. And then at about four or 5,000 feet, my partner deploys the parachute. What's going through your head in that mm-hmm. minute? Nothing, it's fun, you look around. Because I feel like if I... D- I haven't skydived. And I'm terrified of heights. And I think if I was in that minute, all that would be going through my head is, is the parachute going to work? Is the parachute going to work? No, well, you you hope that that works. (laughs) But uh, no, the instructor said, see, over there is Haifa Bay, you know. So you're just listening to him. That's amazing. And then from being horizontal, when the parachute opens, you become vertical. Yeah. And hang. And And then then it takes a long time to come down. Wow, but it must be uh, such an adrenaline those rush. parachutes, you can steer them. Uh, yeah. And, and we knew exactly the spot where we were coming down. Where you're going to land. Yes. That's incredible. So you have no fear of heights, I'm assuming. No, I'm a pilot. Ah, really? I have a, a private pilot's license. And of course, the license is only valid when you have a medical. And you can only get the medical from designated medical places and my last medical expired in February 2017 and I went only recently to London to the medical branch Mm -hmm. to renew my medical yeah and I am perfectly healthy I have nothing wrong with me except I have a little problem with the macular degeneration with the left eye and now I have to have some reports from the hospital here where I am under treatment and whatever they write is okay i am back 
with my medical because everything else, my heart, lungs, hearing is perfect. And then you could fly again. What do you fly? A Cessna? And then I can fly again. Uh, I'm now lapsed some of my licenses. I had the highest licenses that you can get. I took an aeroplane on my own once from London to Israel and back on my own. What kind of a size plane? That's a huge. Uh, it was the Rolls Royce of aeroplanes, a Bonanza. Single engine, very, very sophisticated bonanza because I had the highest licenses. Blind flying in cloud, above cloud, and all that kind of thing. And you flew from London to no, six, not in one go. six hour flight? Ah. I can't fly the speed of jets. Yeah, yeah. I landed in a few places wow. and refueled. You have to this refuel. is what year? When was this? 1971. Ah, okay. So this was many years ago. So many of our listeners are American. I see. And around the world. Right. So I think maybe they, it'd be interesting for them to hear why you decided all of a sudden at the age of 80 to get up, pack your stuff, and make Aliyah to Israel. Well, I wanted to come to Palestine since my mid-teenage. I was in the religious Zionist youth movement called Brit Halutzim Dati'im, and they had a Brit Hanoah, a youth group, and I was registered with them to come to Palestine. And I was waiting for permits, and the British in those days, they were in charge here, didn't give the permits. There was politics involved, oil with Arabs and so on. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a new thing today. I was waiting, for the, and the papers never came. Now, when I went with the kinder transport to England, we discussed before, I didn't come to stay in England. I was with the youth movement. Because the Kindertransport was a, a collective name. Some children went to foster parents, others went to family, some went into hostels. And I went on Hachshara. I went into a, a kind of like a kibbutz mm -hmm. in England, waiting for my papers, mm -hmm. 1939, to come to Palestine. But the war broke out and I literally got stuck in England. My intention was not to be in England. Actually, can I say that loud? I never liked it. Really? But there I was, stuck. And then I went in the war. And the mean, minute I came out of the army, at the very last days of 1947, a shaliach, an emissary from here, came to me and said, look, you are an experienced soldier, come, we want you. That was before the War of Liberation. Mm. And I said, look, I had a bloody, literally, war right up to here. I'm not coming. Had I, I could have been here in the War of Liberation. And knowing me, I would have tried to get into the thick of fighting, which was on the road to Jerusalem, and mm -hmm. I might have been one of the 6,000 who mm. fell. And subsequently, I got married also to a refugee girl from mm -hmm. Vienna. She liked England. What can you do when your wife doesn't want to leave? And then I had another chance, but she wouldn't go because all the people I was with in England initially in this Zionist settlement, so to speak, where they started Kibbutz Lavi here in the Galilee. And I could have been a founder of Kibbutz Lavi. But again, I was married and that was it. But eventually you made your way back. Well, my, I lost my wife in 1990 mm. and uh, stayed on. Be, uh, and then my daughter, who was in the meantime living in South Africa, mm -hmm. I used to visit her every year. And when I realized I couldn't be by myself anymore, really, in England, you don't know what will happen to you. 
I had a grandson, but you didn't want to be a burden to a grandchild. So I got my only daughter one day when I visited there, as I did each year. I said, you know what? I'm coming to live here in Cape Town, near you. She said, don't bother, Daddy, I'm making Aliyah. And she came, and that was wonderful. Oh, that's well, amazing. Two, so now she lives w- here. One year later, when, when another grandson came, and he lives here, and a year later after that, I came. Kibbutz Galuyot. Absolutely. So it was really, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you. If, if people are interested, then you have Walter's World, which well, is... Well, let uh, me, I uh, should give a plug to my program. Yeah, yeah. So I have two programs that you can get on the internet. They used to be live. I used to be a, a, a call-in show talk host, arguing with people. Uh, but now it's a podcast, and you can get it by going to Israel National Radio. Dot com and look for Walter's World, or it's also called Arutsheva. You probably know that term, and you'll find me there. Or on Israel News Talk Radio, which is another s- similar station, also on the internet, and it's a Fox News radio affiliate. Mm. And I have a program on each of those every week. I see. So guys, check it out. Check out. You can also just look up Walter Bingham Israel in Google and you'll get all the stuff. And we'll, we'll put links with the episode. And if you're not watching this, there's amazing pictures here in the background of uh, Walter with John Bolton, with David Friedman, with all these politicians. And obviously you've heard the episode. The man is full of life experiences and knowledge and wisdom. So and if you are in Australia... You can hear it on FM, 87.8 FM. Ah, okay, Every wow. Tuesday at 11 in the morning. All right, so check it out. Um, before we go, uh, we have a collaboration with Arut Sheva, which is actually who connected us. Um, so check them out, Israel National News. Uh, we also have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal of LA, Los Angeles. I don't know if you heard of them, but jewishjournal.com. They have great columns great podcast, Shmuel Rosner, David Suisa, so check them out, jewishjournal.com. And last but not least, we do this on our free time, guys, so uh, if you want to help us out, go to 2njb.com slash donate, and you can help us out. Thank you so much, Walter. It was really a pleasure. It was a great pleasure to uh, be interviewed by you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye, guys.